right, if you have a question, just please raise your hand and then wait, and I will run over as quickly as possible and get this mic in front of you, and then you can ask your question. That way we'll have a really clear recording, um, and everyone will be able to hear exactly what it is that you ask since we're in a little bit bigger room. Uh, my question, I'll just make the statement, and then you can correct me if I need any revisions in my thinking on this. But I was thinking how the, um, sorry, the Christian church, as you talked about making an impact in society by helping it and bringing the gospel, one of the things I noticed was that the state is competing with the Christian community, and especially in the terms of how it's going to control families and how it gives through the welfare and how that affects medicine and everything. And so it was, I was thinking as the Christian community builds this other sector, which it actually doesn't, hasn't really done a great job of it over the whole general Christian community, it seems as if the community needs to do build, but it also needs to, in, in conjunction, work legislatively. And it seems like if it doesn't do those two, it's gonna be ineffective because the sinful nature of man wants that money without accountability. I wanted to know what you thought of that and if I'm misdirected in that. You guys wanna does talk it, about in it? In other or? words, to wrap up the question, does the Christian community just need to build this system and not worry about legislative activity or does it really need to do both? Well, I would start off by noting a concept from Abraham Kuyper called sphere sovereignty. Sphere sovereignty says that God has established different spheres within society that uh, each are supposed to be autonomous, um, governing their own affairs. Kuyper came up with a list of them. It turns out you can derive most of them from Genesis 1 and 2. Welfare is part of the responsibility of the church, not the state. When a sphere begins to get involved in areas that are not part of its proper area, it does them badly. The church and charitable organizations in general are much, much better at meeting people's needs than the state is. So the state is operating really on, you know, in an area that it is not competent in, and as a result, it comes up with one-size-fits-none policies. Now, so what do we do about this? Um, the first thing is, I think that we do need to be building things up that will work alongside the existing, where, where we are now. We've got to build things up that'll work alongside the existing structures, but do it better. And doing it better means that we need to minister to the whole person, not just to their immediate physical needs. That includes providing them with dignity through work and things like that. You know, work, people think of work as sort of a punishment or something like that. You can't get welfare unless you work. Well, actually, it, it, a proper understanding of it is we're, we're affirming the person's dignity by giving them a way to be productive and effective within society, and that is just simply better for them. And it is, like I said, it, it affirms their dignity more. 
Along with that, though, I do think we have to think about legislative issues as well, because Jesus's lordship extends into every area of life, and that includes government. So I don't think it's an either or, but I would put much more emphasis on the work that you can do in your own community, which is going to be much more effective in your community than anything that comes out of Washington. I think uh, to you know supplement this, and I agree with what uh, Glenn says, a uh, couple of things. One is I don't think that most, um, or at least in terms of my own experience, I don't think that many of the people I've known were aware of some of the really uh, good resources that uh, address th these, these questions that are there. And I don't think that um, the places that they tend to look for you know, uh, help are all that helpful. So, for example, I would say uh, a resource that, that I don't think most pastors in the evangelical world are aware of is a guy named Alan C. Carlson. Alan is a uh, probably he, the, the the foremost, maybe the leading authority in uh, our country on the subject of family policy. He's a personal friend of mine as well, which is nice. <laughs> but Alan uh, was, uh, you know, he was involved with the Reagan administration and the and some of the work that the, that was done on families in the Reagan administration. Um, he is uh, uh, got a journal. Uh, that, it, that he's published for years uh, that comes out of Rock, uh, is it Rock, Rockford, Illinois, I think it is. I think it's Rockford, Illinois. But anyway, uh, so he's got, he pu has publications on family policy. He, he taught at Hillsdale College. Uh, so he's a, he's a guy who uh, is really given a lot of thought to a number of the ma these matters. Uh, he's written a number of books on the history of the family in the United States, the way family policy in different governments around the world has affected family life. Uh, so he's, a, he's an authority that uh, is a Christian, you know, he's, he's Christian, he's world class, and probably less than 1% of the pastors in America even know who he is. So that's an example that I would like to present as to what you know, is what's the what's wrong? One of the one of the wrong one of the things that's wrong is uh, we have great resources that no one is aware of, um, or very few people are aware of. Uh, another thing is, I was a ward of the state for about a decade. I know what it's like to live on the inside of the social welfare system in the United States, and let me tell you, uh, it's not where you want to live. It's something you want to get out of as quickly as you can. So the state. Uh, and I have no reason to believe anything is any better today. <laughs> uh, the state is not a substitute for the family, and anyone who uh, maintains that it is is just simply living um, a fantasy. Um, now, that doesn't mean that every family is healthy. It doesn't mean that every family situation is what it should be. But on the balance, uh, I think that uh, when we when we think about you know, the, the work of the state with regard to addressing problems with families, it really is the last of the last of the last resort, <laughs> resort things you resort to. It's, it's not 
option one. It's option Z. Or <laughs> and, I, and, and one of those is alphabetically ordered and, and the other is numerically, and that's purposeful. <laughs> it's, 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 you should almost never even think of going there. Uh, that said, I mean, state's good at certain things, uh, making sure that you got lots of Velveeta cheese. Um, well, I don't even know <laughs> if they're that good at that anymore. But, you know, what I'm talking about is just basically yeah. uh, just the bare sort of uh, essentials to survive. You know, they can, they can make certain that you, you've got a place to, to sleep. They can make certain you have enough calories to survive, but they can't give you a reason to live. Um, they can't uh, ensure that your relationships are good and healthy with anyone that you're in, you know, interacting with in a, in a state institution. Most of those relationships are just very... Uh, I think, uh, well, they're very thin. They're 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 uh, functional. They're 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 basically almost me mechanical in nature. They're not hum human in nature. Anyway, that's a, that's my experience. Maybe someone will say, "Hey, I was a word of the state, and it was the greatest thing in my life." I've never met that person, uh, but I'm not saying it's impossible for such a thing to exist. But I can't imagine it. And, and I think, uh, you know, one of the things I've noticed just reflecting on the question, for example, of, of Christians involved in uh, leadership, legislation, um, government, um, Christians have always had a struggle sometimes with entering into those places and hand, handling it well. I mean, you think of the, you know, the conversion of the Roman Empire, you think of... Um, the church's shift from being a persecuted community to being a tolerated community to starting to become um, basically governing things as if they were the state um, in the way they, they handled it a lot of times, the way that the world handles it. Um, and we often see that you find Christians get um, into public office or self-professed Christians, I mean, or, you know, leadership positions, Francis Collins, for example, and you see the compromise and, and the um, pollution that happens. So it's not an easy thing um, to be a Christian and enter into a field of leadership and power in that kind of place. Um, on the one hand, there's a lot of temptation on the other. There's a lot of um, hostility on the other. So you have a lot going against you. On the other hand, we're called to be salt and light in those arenas. And so I, I think one of the things is, is that really thinking through the strong connected, connectedness of developing leaders, discipling leaders, raising leaders in the church and keeping them connected to the church even as they are interactive in, in the, these fields, is something we have to kind of think very hard about to do it um, effectively. I, I think playing with power, um, even aiming to do good, requires a lot of Christian wisdom at a time like ours today. I mean, any time, but it requires a lot. Some people can do it well. Some people just go right in and, and carry it out well. They're, they're not compromised, and they, they can do as much as they can, and they handle it. Um, but, uh, it, you know, it's something I think a lot about because I, see, I often just see the ineffectiveness of, of much, I mean, 
pastoral leadership in addressing social issues in the, in the state and in the challenges. I mean, think of the problems we have in this society. Think of how many, how many people are professedly Christian in this society. And just think of that missing connection. I mean, th you think of all the evangelical pastors that supposedly have pulpits that they can, they have a, a social voice in in some ways. And think of how it's, I don't hear anything, rarely. You're not turning on, you know, the radio and the news and, and saying, you know, such and such is addressing issues that demands our attention. It's completely ignored because most of the time it's completely worth ignoring. Um, and so it, it, it's a, that's a hard question. But I, I mean, I, it doesn't, I'm not getting away from the issues. Yeah, we need to be involved in all these areas. Um, but there's also um, what is it that we're bringing and what kind of leadership. I think leadership is kind of growing, growing to be a lost thing. And I think we need it there, especially. The public education system seems to have kind of taken the long view, and when it was started roughly 100 years ago, they seem to kind of have achieved their goals in some respect. And as Christians, we've been vigilant about the education system, and we've adopted kind of our own style, returning to homeschooling and all. And we've even, you know, thought that the public education system ought to be brought down God seemed to have done that in one fell swoop worldwide here. <laughs> and we see now, beyond it's just pure entertainment value, we see parents becoming awoken yeah. to what the public school system is actually teaching. How much of a crisis do you think the, the, the educrats are, the, the folks that are defending this, are really in? And then are we really prepared for an alternative as a, as a culture or are we like those countries that we typically periodically try to export democracy to that have no foundation and don't know how to deal with it? Hmm. What's going to happen as a result of this crisis that, hmm. that we see public education in? Yeah, that's a great, great question, Tom. I was involved in something back in the 90s called the Parents' Rights Movement back in Massachusetts. And the guy who was leading the effort was a guy named Brian Kamaker. He was a Jewish guy, conservative guy. And he was working to, you know, make connections with Christian leaders, and I helped him uh, connect with a lot of inner-city pastors and stuff because I was involved in urban ministry at that time. And it was, it wasn't, you know, altogether surprising to me how hostile the public education world was to parental involvement in education. But um, it was explicit as we sat in Senate court, you know, and, and so hearings, you know, when we'd have public, you know, people from you know, uh, the public education system making the case against parental involvement, parental knowledge of, regarding content, just how dismissive and condescending the, these people were. Um, and uh, so, uh, you know, the comeuppance that we, we see, uh, you know, at the moment, I think is, is uh, you know, God's judgment on it. One of the things that's lost on people is that United Nations, uh, one of the things in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is the authority of parents over the education of their children. Hmm. Were you aware that that, that exists? Hmm. It's something that the UN uh, observes. <laughs> and it's something that uh, we don't find uh, congenial, I guess, in certain parts of the United States. But yeah, there's a lot of remarkable things happening right now. But the, the second part of your question, are we up? 
to you know helping these folks, making the transition, providing an alternative? That's a huge question. I've got hopes, dreams. <laughs> I don't have any sense of confidence though at the moment. I hope that we can, we can we can rise to the occasion though. Just on that, Glenn, maybe. Uh, shedding a little insight on the way that Christians have had to carry the educational bag <laughs> um, throughout history um, in all kinds of circumstances, whether they're, you know, protecting libraries and books that are being destroyed or, or anything else. They've, they, this has sort of been something they've had to do over and over again. Yeah, historically, Christians, well, everywhere that the gospel has gone, two things have followed. Hospitals, because Christians believe the body is important, and schools, because Christians believe the mind is important. And we are facing a situation now where I really do, well, one of the reasons why I'm so delighted to be out of the university is the particular university that I was in started off as a normal school, which means a teacher's school. And Education has been a major component of what the university has always been about. We taught, we trained teachers. That, that's one of the big things that, that CCSU did. And I always felt like, in some sense, I was complicit in a really totally corrupt system. Um, I did what I could, where I could, but I never really felt good about a lot of what was going on there. But. The, the, the point that Tom makes, I think, is a good one, that you know, education has collapsed before, and it's Christianity that has brought it out, you know, that, that, that has re restored it. Um, we need to be aware, first of all, of the importance of education. We can't devalue it, um, but we have to take a broader view of what education is. Um, it's not just vocational training. Vocational training is important, but character formation is equally important. You know, we need to be aware of that. We need to be thinking of things like that. And we need to be thinking creatively about how to respond to the crisis that we are facing right now. Um, I don't know what that response is going to look like. I'm much better at events that happened in the past than things that are going to happen in the future. Um, but um, an honest historian. But but I think that that if we are aware of it, if we're looking at for it, if we're thinking about it. Um, and if we're looking for solutions, I'm sure that the Holy Spirit will guide us to ways in which we can rebuild and repair a system that is basically bankrupt. And there is, I mean, it's, there is a good question of, uh, you know, if you want to say it, uh, demonic strategy of the long march into the institutions. I mean, it, there is something about that. It requires patience. It requires the, the provision to... to, to be patient enough to say this isn't always going to be fixed today. And, um, you know, there is some wisdom in that. And there is, there is you know, the patience in it. It's just they, they've got the, they're carrying something that's destructive. Um, and, and we have to be patient. 
and we have to be wise, and we have to really, really, um, I, I do think, draw again off of our riches and the purposes we've been given and reorient education towards those higher ends which we've been given as Christians and which we are as human creatures. Um, and I, I do think we can re-envision this and be, be light in a, in a dark world. Now, there, you know, here's a question, and this is, it comes up with it. I mean, is it all about you know, saving the, the, the appearance, like we talked about earlier, saving the you know, education itself? Um, because I think the, the, you know, the system that's going on now is about to implode. And so is it about just having alternative options or is it really something Christians really have a, a duty right now to all be involved with in terms of the education of the Christian communities and the children in those communities? Sometimes we put all, I mean, you know, put all the burden on the household, which is good. It's the first place it is there. But sometimes it requires a larger Christian community to help in those, in that doing. And we are called to be a body of Christ. And so what it means to be a body of Christ and to be one in terms of educating the children that are in the church um, in a way that is building up families to be able to do that and also enriching each other as, as brothers and sisters and families in Christ. Um, we have, again, these resources, but, but I, you know, sometimes the form they take is hard to, to, to project. When we think about the kingdom of God, which is what we're really, we ought to be about, we should be, we should be people who are thinking always in terms of the kingdom. Um, the kingdom, uh, there are a lot of ways that I could go into defining this, but uh, the bottom line here is that in the kingdom, everything that is broken is restored. So one of the questions we need to be, well, uh, there's, there's actually a complex of questions here. When you're taking a look at what the kingdom is, what is good that needs to be supported? What is evil that needs to be opposed? What is missing that needs to be supplied? What is broken that needs to be repaired? Those are the questions we need to be asking in our communities, in our society, in our culture, everywhere. And education, I think Tom is absolutely right, education is one of those because things are about to implode if they haven't already, if it hasn't already started. Um, the only way it is going to continue is if the government basically mandates it and forces the issue. As it is, I don't really see how it can continue because parents, too many parents are aware of what the problems are and are pulling their kids out. Now, there are a lot of them that are keeping them in. But when you lose a critical mass of your kids, you're going to have problems in the system. system cannot sustain itself that way. So I think we are looking at the potential collapse of education. So what is the kingdom response? What's missing that needs to be supplied? What's broken that needs to be repaired? So that's how, that's how we need to be looking at this right now. Um, you, you've mentioned the, the good, the true, and the beautiful. Um, that came into my vocabulary fairly recently. Where, where does that come from? And 
are there some good resources to help get Christians thinking in those uh, categories? Right. That's that's a great great thing to talk about. I'm glad you brought it up. Um, the if we don't um, believe that uh, beauty is objective, uh, like goodness and truth are objective, then we're going to uh, struggle with justifying any effort to make something beautiful, because then it'll just be your personal opinion, I like this, and that kind of thing. Um, the classical way of understanding truth, goodness, and beauty is that they have their origin in God, and that these are real things that can be apprehended uh, even by people who are unbelievers. They can have a sense that there's something uh, profound and real that they're, they're uh, seeing or experiencing. In terms of the resources, uh, this was pretty much uh, part of the curriculum of every educated minister and any, any, every educated person you know, into the 19th century. It's only been in the course of the 20th century that we've lost touch with these things. And one of the great tragedies is that, is that generally speaking, the churches uh, provided some resistance early on, but then capitulated, both uh, you know, conservative as well as the liberal. The liberal churches, we kind of said, okay, um, we expect that from you. <laughs> but uh, when the conservatives did it, you're like, what was that about? Anyway, um, so, you know, for example, the reason I'm, I'm focusing in on beauty is that's often considered to be the, sort of the weak uh, link in the, in the triad or the weak point in the, in the, th in the three uh, as they connect. My, my, at my, not my most recent church before this one, but the one before that, we had a building program. And I, uh, so I was in part brought in to, to, to serve that church as pastor to help lead the building program effort. I had to convince the people in my building committee that, that beauty was an important consideration. There was complete, there was complete uh, sort of, I don't know, blindness that this was something we should even be concerned about. I remember uh, I, I even had to go, I even had to lecture the architect uh, on why this was an important thing. <laughs> And and this and the and the and the and the significance of architecture in terms of the story it tells. So, so you were building a uh, educational wing which had a large uh, gymnasium and multi-use, you know, sort of like banquet space and all these different kinds of things. He brought back initially the, this this plan, and when I looked at the elevations, I noticed that the gymnasium would have the highest roof line, dwarf the sanctuary, literally dwarf it. And I, I looked at the guy and I said, what are you thinking? <laughs> it, does it, do, do you realize what that says? And he looked at me like I had two heads. And I said, what you're saying with that is that the most important things that happen at this place happen in the gym. <laughs> it never occurred to him that a building speaks and that the architecture says something about God. Uh, and so anyway, it's a... It, it's, it's something that I think we, we once you begin to think in these terms, it's like obvious, you know, like, oh, of course, of course, of course. And the reason it's that way is because it's true. <laughs> it's, these things are real. Truth, goodness, and beauty are real. So there's, there's a lot of uh, material that you can find 
that was, you know, prior to the 20th century that addresses this stuff. Um, there are even figures like John Ruskin, you know, in the early part of the 20th century who talked a lot about architecture in particular, but, but beauty, uh, uh, as you know, in general. Um, yeah, it's made a. I mean, it's made a big comeback in in theology and academic theology, um, right? For, for 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 a while. But I, I mean, I think maybe uh, what you know, a way of addressing it is is just theologically first and foremost. Um, it, it, it grows, for firstly, out of our understanding of God as as the the infinite source of all things, but the pearl of great price. In other words, as, as James says, is all. Perfect gifts come from God, and truth, beauty, and goodness are what what uh, earlier thinkers would call transcendentals. What do we mean by that? They are things, they're goods and perfections in the creation creation that don't have a limit because they they they're they're infinite, right? Goodness, where where's the limit it has? Infinite goodness, right? Other creaturely things have a limit. So these things, oh, we're not the source of these things, and we're not, we're not the ends of these things, but we get to share in these things in some way. Beauty is similar. They're, they're, you, can't, you, know, you can have the horrors of the Holocaust, but Bach playing in the background doesn't cease to be beautiful, even if there's horror and sin going on that, that, that uh, distorts the, the hearing of that beauty, right? That beauty transcends that. It, it, in, in beauty and truth is very similar. Why? Because they are not merely grounded in God, but God is truth itself, beauty itself. God is, is the, the um, not just the source of these, but is these things in their fullest sense. And so the doctrine of creation, as you know, we talked a little bit earlier, is the, theophanic. It... it, it projects this truth, beauty, and goodness in such a way that we know something of it, but we can't capture it. It evokes the desire in us. <laughs> um, the, you know, this, we talked a lot about that. It, 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 you know, C.S. Lewis will often talk about joy, right? Uh, joy is another one of these transcendentals. And he talks about as a kid having his first experience of joy when his brother makes this little garden in a box. And he says, it wasn't the thing itself, but it came through that thing, right? It, it transcended that thing. So I had an experience of joy that created this intense longing for joy itself. Um, and the, this, is, this is part of, I mean, St. Augustine will say, our heart is restless. Why? Until it rests in, in that, that infinite plenitude. Um, and so um, theologians w picked up on even the philosophical discussions about it. I mean, Plato discussed issues of, of beauty and transcendence, truth, goodness itself, and others. And they reoriented them in light of, of the doctrine of the Trinity and the Incarnation and, and kind of really brought about some of the most profound transformations of those topics. Yeah, today, though, maybe a good uh, author to read on the subject contemporary, died not too long ago, is Roger Scruton. I don't know if you're familiar with him. But he's, a, he's certainly a person that would be a good starting point. It's also worth noting what happens when you lose them. If you look at the chronology, the first thing that goes is the concept of beauty. Beauty becomes in the eye of the beholder, or art turns into ugliness and shock and so on. Once you've cleared beauty off the decks, the next thing that comes up is goodness. 
So suddenly there is no standard for ethics. Everything is situational and relative. It's utilitarian. There is no absolute right or wrong. There is no absolute good or evil. Everything is, well, relative. It's just sort of floating. And the net result is we lose any kind of standard of ethics. We lose any kind of concept of goodness, virtue, or whatever. Once you have beauty and goodness out of the way, the last one to fall is truth. We live in a post-truth society. We live in a society that does no longer believe that there is a such thing as truth. Everything is perspective. Um, the sequence is important. Beauty is the gatekeeper. Without, it, it, while beauty stands, the other two can't, can't be attacked. But once beauty's out of the way, goodness is the next. And then when that's out of the way, truth is. This, is. this is historically what happened. They're all interlocked, they're all interconnected. You get rid of one, it opens up the gate to the other. And the first one to fall is, is beauty because it's the most vulnerable. I've got an encouraging and kind of inspiring story to tell along this line. At our, at our last church, uh, in our youth group, we had a young man named Tony, homeschooled guy, went to Yukon, the main campus of stores, uh, had a, uh, you know, uh, he was an artist, he, he had some real talent, and became s s sort of the, you know, kind of the phenom in the, in the art program at UConn. So this is a guy who grew up in a very strong Christian home, homeschooled all the way through high school, rises to the top there in that program, then is, gets a full ride to Goldsmiths in London, which is like one of the world's premier art schools. And f for his entire time there, it was t constant battle, constant war. Him against the entire Marxist faculty. Hmm. It was, <laughs> he, would he would come home, tell me his experiences, and I'd get up and shake his hand. <laughs> you are the man, Tony. <laughs> now, if you met Tony, you would never, like, he's just a regular guy, and he's not, you would never think of him as being sort of like a guy that was cut out to be heroic. But he, he took that stand, uh, defied the entire art department in his uni uh, at Goldsmiths, and got his degree. In fact, uh, would uh, there's all kinds of stories that I could tell about you know how, how that all sort of played out. But you know here was a guy that wouldn't back down on the objective reality of beauty, just would not back down, and I think won an important battle. And just in so far as he didn't capitulate, he didn't do with it what he was being um, pressured to do. So anyway. It's, on a worldview level, it's worth noting that to a materialist, beauty cannot be objective because it's neither matter nor energy. So it has to be subjective. It cannot be objective, which is why a Marxist is going to be really upset at you if you start trying to make a credible case that there is something objective about beauty. And you know, I guess you know one more point on this. I think comes from Scruton, and, he, and this really comes equally from th just theology. Is in, in theology when we understand um, God as as the you know the fulfillment of our our desires, if you will, as as the the Creator in which we rest and find the fulfillment of our being. Um, a lot of times we functionalize God and we try to turn God into our, you know, something that helps with our projects, 
you know, we have pragmatic projects and God, we baptize a concept of God to, to kind of make those projects work well. We, it's, a, it's a form of idolatry. We may even have a classical Christian conception of God, but we're not pursuing God, loving God first with all our heart, mind, soul, body, and strength. We're loving ourselves first, and God becomes a sort of way of propping up that thing. So when beauty is pursued like that, when you pursue beauty for pragmatic uses, um, it therefore is ripped from what beauty is in itself, something worth pursuing because it's beautiful itself. It's like a pearl of great price that when you find it, you get rid of all the other pearls because you're not using this for anything other than the sheer delight in its transcendental beauty. Beauty is what is beautiful about it, right? And when that happens, you create beautiful things when they're oriented towards it, but when you, Cre just create something for functional use. Think of any functional building that is, has been built recently, right? It all looks like brutalism. And 20 to 30 years later, what do you think of it? Versus, say, a, a cathedral that was made for the glory of God. It stands generation after generation. It's beauty for its own sake. Um, and it's aimed towards beauty for its own sake. Therefore, it has a lasting and eternal impression around it. Whereas, you know, something permanent about it. Um, and whereas something that is just pursued, um, you know, that distorts beauty and turns it into something that really just is a function of our wants and desires and think, you know, our, our subjectivity, we end up uh, ripping and distorting it and ourselves in the process. Um, we don't become, we don't refract beauty. We become ugly like, you know, like uh, the way the world looks right now. <laughs> Um, I would like some clarification on something that is probably an elemental question. How should we think about our rights? And one of the things, just as an example, that's been probably on a lot of people's minds is one person's right to feel safe at work versus another person's right to refuse medical attention for an ongoing worldwide medical emergency. <laughs> Chris, I'll let you take them. <laughs> well, you know, I, when I think uh, uh, what, uh, about this particular subject, the question of, you know, what are these rights uh, that we're, we're talking about based upon? So I think that's one thing we have to kind of step back and look at. Um, there is the question of having a right to life, but that's not kind of an absolutely clear thing, you know, in terms of uh, what that does that call for, um, particularly when we get into this particular matter, which is so fraught with, you know, kind of the devil in the details, you know, questions, you know. Um, the right to... Um, to allow somebody to act upon my body uh, because another person fears that I may be carrying some disease um, is the, the question that we, we, we're dealing with here. So uh, in order for one person's right to, you know, li life, there needs to be some compromise in terms of someone else's uh, right to life. And then what do we... 
how do we adjudicate that? How do we determine that? Um, some people would say, well, the science tells us. Uh, <laughs> and I think that there's a growing loss, well, there's a, there's, uh, maybe a better way to put it, there's a, there's a loss of confidence uh, by many people when you know, we think about uh, science being a, a guide. The, 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 the fact of the matter is, uh, you know, we have friends who are scientists. Uh, we have friends who are world-class scientists. And we know them by their first names. <laughs> and if you were to ask us, are they always right? We'd say, say no. <laughs> I've known many times when, when Richard was wrong. <laughs> you know, it's, so it's, it's, these, these are not uh, divine figures from above who uh, are, you know, to be trusted, um, you know, completely. Um, so I think all those things have to come into consideration. I'm just sort of raising the issues that I think probably all, everybody here already is aware of. But do you have something you wanted to say, Glenn? I think that there are a couple of different considerations here that are important. One of them is the source of rights. Uh, rights are not granted by government. Rights are given to us by God. And once again, we can find uh, them in Genesis 1 and 2. You know, if you read carefully, you will find a great deal of stuff about, and think about it through this lens, you'll find the roots for a lot of our concepts of what our rights are right there. Um, I do not know where the idea that I have a right to feel safe comes from. I don't know where the idea that I have the right to be afraid of you because you might carry a disease comes from. I don't know where the right for me to feel comfortable, for me to make you do something medically with your body that you may not want to do just so that I can feel safe. I don't know where that right comes from. Um, it seems to me that these last several examples are absurdities. And what they represent is a combination of excessive narcissism on the one hand and a cult of safety on the other. The bad news is you are more likely to be killed in your car going to work than you are by somebody from COVID at work. But we're not afraid to drive. So there, there is, I think, a great deal of things that make no logical sense that are completely absurd about this situation. And even to say, you have to get the vaccination so I can feel safe is an incredibly narcissistic statement. And I just, you know, I just don't buy it. Now, it doesn't mean you shouldn't get vaccinated. That's your decision. But I think that the argument itself is, is really, in a lot of ways, fairly ludicrous. Yeah, and I think that, you know, another thing that I think is troubling is the, the eclipse of truth in society, the sinister motivations of people who are um, right in our faces day in, day out, lying. <laughs> you can compare notes from what they say the day before. And then you see, um, a, a, you see a mad rush, for example, maybe we'll use the vaccination as an example, with vaccination without any qualification. 
you know. So you'll, you're only going to fit, have a one-size-fits-all, and you're going to force that on, on everyone. No medicine works that way. None. Uh, there, there are people that can have allergic reactions to Pepsid AC, right? Are we going to force everyone at work, you know, because somebody's acid reflux may kill someone else to take up, you know? I mean, you know, I don't want to be absurd with it, but, but you see where this goes. And so, yeah, we, we have the fear and the hype and, and the, you know, the political motivations, but then we start to have this push into irrationality. And as Christians, we are called to use our reason, and that's part of what God has given us. And, and yes, even Reformed folk have to use their reason. <laughs> Oftentimes, we, we talk of it as the devil's whore. <laughs> uh, sorry for the language there. That was, that was Luther's term, not mine. Um, but I think Luther's point is what, what's happening when it is used um, to, to uh, justify things that are untrue. They sound reasonable to a lot of people who aren't using their reason. Um, they don't know how to use their reason. Yeah, I think another dimension to this is sort of the ethos, the social ethos that we live in that, that sort of opens up and closes possibilities. Uh, one of my favorite thinkers is a fellow by the name of Christopher Lash. He was an historian. And uh, he uh, wrote a book entitled... Uh, the Revolt of the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy. It was his last book. It was published, I think, in, I think, 95, 96, 97, sometime like that. He was uh, just so remarkably uh, insightful, and uh, his scholarship was uh, just overwhelmingly good. <laughs> he was just one of these people that you, you, you thought, when you read his material, how did you read all of that stuff? Uh, how did you master all of this material? And how, you know, and put it in, the, in, in, in a way that I could grasp the way you did. But he, uh, in that book, in the fifth chapter of that book, as you can tell, it's an important book, and that's an important chapter to me so, since I can actually remember. <laughs> but he, he, talk, he talks in that chapter about the ethic of compassion versus the ethic of responsibility. The ethic of responsibility uh, presupposes that every person has a capacity to act responsibly, uh, exercising moral agency. The ethic of compassion assumes helplessness, that everyone needs someone to come alongside them and fix their problems for them. We live in a society now that's the ethos is the ethic of compassion. Not that compassion is a bad word, but when compassion uh, presupposes that no one can take care of themselves and that we have to behave in such a way or we have to legislate in such a way uh, so as to you know, essentially discount the, the capacity of citizens to, to uh, make informed judgments for themselves. Democracy is gone. That's where we are. The book is titled The Revolt of the Elites, the Elites and the Betrayal of Democracy by Christopher Lash. We have time for one more question. All right, so kind of a question, um, maybe in, in regard to how we think of Christian community. And um, I think we've, we've interacted um, with people who may have, may have come to an understanding of looking at a book like Rod Breyer's Benedict Option and taking a, taking a view of strategic re retreat that would would relocate their family, would 
move out of these bad blue states like like we are now. Like Connecticut. But I feel like there's there's a there's a ditch on the side of the road where we put ourselves in a sense uh, in a place of of undisciplined undisciplined flight, and we miss an opportunity to build culture, but. I think that Dreher's book has got a lot to recommend it. I think he shot himself in the foot with the title. Because he, what he is not advocating, and I've talked to Rod about this, he is not advocating withdrawal from society. He's not advocating going and building a monastery up on Mount Hood and, get, and, and withdrawing from, from, <laughs> from the world. That's not what he's saying. What he's really looking for is for us to build intentional communities, to be self-conscious and clear about what we're doing, and to have a genuine sense of commitment to each other and to a set of ideals that we are going to be living by. Um, which means that we don't up and move easily, we don't withdraw, we don't get bored and go do something else. We have a strong commitment to pursuing intentionally our life together. That's what he's calling for. It's not, you know, people who read it as withdrawal are kind of missing what he's, what he's really saying. But like I said, the very fact that he used the Benedictine monasteries in his title it, it really is misleading. That's not really what he's after. And I think he's actually more after, and even that whole Benedictine model is after Dietrich Bonhoeffer's life together, the communities in, in the breakdown after, uh, of, of Europe, basically, after World War II, when Christianity had basically become suspicious because it, it was fragmented and ruined in many cases. Um, what is Christian community going to look like? Um, that's kind of been a big, big question in, in theology, and I think it is a continuum. And I think that's one of the things we were trying to address: is we can't leave that out of the equation. <laughs> we're not going to be able to fight this as individuals. We have an individual part to play, but we, we we're not called to be individuals. We're called to be the body of Christ. We have an individual part to play. We don't lose our individuality. It's the place in which it's fostered in the fullest sense. Um, and, and so, but I do think that intentional aspect is important. We don't tend to think, um, I think, with the full set of riches that we have as, as the, the people of the church. The amount of, you think of the way that God has called the church to be gifted for the equipping of the saints, for the building up of the saints, for common mission. That's common life together. That's common purpose. Oftentimes we have our purposes, we're all part of the kingdom, but we've got our purposes. How much of that purpose is not being brought together? I mean, I had my purpose, Glenn has his, Chris has his, but you know what? We do a lot of things together that we weren't getting done just by ourselves. We have those things too. We don't lose them, but there, there is something about that bringing of that, that giftedness into communion that things start to be, be built and, 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 you know, Christ is building a temple, an eternal one, right? And we, we are part of the ones that are building on that chief cornerstone. We can't lose that, that conceptuality or, and, and riches. Um, but, but again, uh, it's, you know, the details of that is hard to, sometimes to trace out. Well, I guess that's where I'd like to go, is, is thinking at least about uh, one detail, and that's where to live. So, yeah. you know, when it comes to... 
uh, is it time to move out? Um, is it is that a good place to move to? Those kinds of questions. Yeah. Um, I think you know wisdom has to be exercised. I think there needs to be a kind of um, tension to a range of things. So, you know, when uh, Abram was told to 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 go to the land he would be shown, it wasn't as though he was being led to a good neighborhood. There was there was a lot of nasty stuff going on <laughs> in the neighborhood he moved, he moved into, <laughs> and. Uh, then uh, his nephew, Lot, moves into a particularly bad corner of a bad neighborhood <laughs> and is, you know, set up house there and uh, trying to get along and with his neighbors but stay pure at the same time. You know, we can critique uh, his efforts, you know, from a safe remove like this. <laughs> but uh, then it was time to leave and get out and leave everything behind. Just don't even look back. And we know what happened to the woman who looked back. So I think that there is a kind of situational awareness we need to have. This situation, I don't know if I'm going to be able to succeed in preserving the faith in this situation. Uh, maybe it's better to move on uh, right now. Maybe this is Sodom. Uh, on the other hand, um, if we're faithful in a bad neighborhood, you know, um, what was it Chesterton said? He said that, that you don't love your country because it's beautiful. Your country becomes beautiful because it's loved. Hmm. You know, that idea. Um, I think there's a lot to that. So again, I, you know, I don't think there's a, a simple answer. I think there has to be kind of wisdom on the ground. Can we make this thing work? If not, we got to get out, that kind of thing. All right. I want to thank the podcast crew for coming all the way out here. And uh, Glenn and Tom especially are on a different time zone. And really appreciate you. Sorry still, if like, I've been dragging a little. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be more energized later this week. Well, I appreciate you giving us, uh, giving us your time in these late hours. Uh, but uh, please uh, give them a round of applause. And tomorrow, uh, Tom is teaching in the Bible study hour, and Glenn is preaching in the service. That's right, yeah. And I think all the details are on the website for that. But if not, you just have it here. Um, the, uh, I also want to thank a number of people by name who made this event possible. Um, I want to thank Caleb Wiley for also flying out uh, to uh, accommodate all of the audio needs of this uh, tour. Uh, Sarah Spiller. Cherie and Melody Sturdivant, um, Cindy Mack, people who um, coordinated the pub recordings earlier, Max Spiller and Zach for Compass, um, and probably others that I'm forgetting, but please give uh, all of these people a round of applause.